Well, we'll be looking this morning at Zechariah 4, so if you have your Bible open there, that's good. Our text is actually Matthew 1 from the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. But before we turn to the scriptures together, I just want to uh, reiterate uh, what uh, we had in the intimations note, uh, and that was our, our gratitude, Rosemary's gratitude for uh, the, the lovely afternoon that we enjoyed last Sunday. It really was a special time and uh, it will certainly live long uh, in our memories. It was lovely to, to, um, to be together, to have these photographs and uh, your generosity was really uh, too much but it was much appreciated and so just want to thank you again for, for that lovely time last week. I was with um, a few colleagues uh, last week and we were doing that, that thing that you do sometimes. Uh, do you remember what you were doing on the day that you heard about uh, the 9-11 tragedy? Uh, and we all could, I can remember very vividly where I was, how I heard about it and just the trauma that gripped me. Well, there are a few dates like that. Uh, those that are older will maybe remember John F. Kennedy's assassination or Martin Luther King's assassination and so on. For the people of Israel, one momentous date that etched itself in the minds, the collective mind of the people was uh, October 12th, 539 BC. That was a life-changing date for the people of God who had been taken into exile in Babylon by the notorious Babylon king Nebuchadnezzar. And on that date, in 539 BC, General Gubaru, Cyrus the Great, the great Persian emperor, his general entered into Babylon and took Babylon unopposed. It's a remarkable victory. What they did was they diverted the Euphrates River, which uh, had gone under the city wall uh, to supply water, and the army were able to go at waist high in the water, under the wall, and enter the city and took Babylon without so much as an arrow being shot. Now Cyrus was a very interesting guy. Uh, he was a, a, a king, an emperor, who was sympathetic to other cultures. And he issued an edict the following year, 538, which said that the Jews could go back to their old country. And he would help them to be re-established in their old country. And this was a remarkable event. The exile was coming to an end. And God had promised that the exile would come to an end. He said it would last for 70 years. And depending on how you date things, uh, it would either be at the completion of the temple or uh, dated back to an earlier deportation. It would certainly be an exile of limited time. And the return to their homeland was now taking place. Now, in Matthew's genealogy, and we're looking at the family line of the Lord Jesus, and we've been picking out some of the less usual, uh, less commented on uh, individuals in that family line. We reminded ourselves last time it's grouped into three generations, three, three groups of 14. And there are some obvious 
leaders in each group. Abraham is an obvious candidate for being the most important in the first group because he is the father of the Jewish nation. He is the one to whom the promises that uh, through his seed all the nations of the world will be blessed is made. Then we come in the next group to David. Again, David is a towering figure. Uh, He is the archetypal messianic king. He is the, the one who shows what Jesus will be like. He is the shepherd king. He is strong, but he rules with gentleness and compassion. The third group, however, uh, when we read that, the names are nearly all uh, kind of exotic and unfamiliar. Uh, The standout personality is less obvious. It's certainly not Jeconiah, whose name begins the group, although Jeconiah is an interesting guy, and we'll come and maybe comment on him at a later time. Uh, It is actually Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is mentioned repeatedly along with another leader, Joshua, at the time of the return of these Jews when Cyrus had issued that edict back in 538. And he features in Zechariah and in Ezra and Haggai. Zerubbabel is an important guy. And uh, it's interesting, uh, he is a kind of stranger to, to most of us, if we're honest. But uh, who knows? Uh, maybe he'll come into vogue, into popularity. You know how some names uh, today are, are kind of reappearing as being quite popular? I'm thinking of the name Joshua. I think there were two Joshuas uh, here yesterday, the craft state. Well, maybe in the future, Zerubbabel will top the, the names <laughs> of boys' lists. It's maybe a, it's a, maybe a far out shot there. But he's an important and he's hugely significant. Uh, The Jews in Babylon had had a traumatic experience. God had judged them for their idolatry and Nebuchadnezzar had taken them out of their own land and he was God's instrument of judgment on them. And in exile, they would learn the lesson that idolatry is a heinous sin. They would be guilty of lots of other things when they came back, but God had effectively purged them of idolatry in their time in Babylon. When they were in Babylon, they kept up their customs and their worship. They recorded meticulously the family trees so that each one was able to state which tribe they came from. There was no longer a temple, but there was a priest who was their guide in observing the law and leading them in prayer and sacrifice, and his name was Joshua. There was no throne, because the kingdom had come to an end with the exile, but Zerubbabel was their leader, and Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, and next in line to the throne had there been one. So Zerubbabel is the the civil leader. Joshua the priest is the religious leader. And in five... Three six, three years after Cyrus the Persian had conquered Babylon, Zerubbabel leads the first group of Jews back into Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple. Now Zerubbabel was a strong man. Uh, appears in, in the various accounts and exhortations given to him, a man of principle. Uh, he must have been a tough man in terms of his kind of emotional character because going back to Jerusalem would have been a, a deeply 
disappointing experience for anyone who had heard down through the generations of the glories of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the joy of the whole earth. Now unrecognisable, all of the familiar landmarks had been erased. The temple was destroyed, the walls of the city had been torn down. There was nothing left, they were building a nation from scratch. But Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and descendant of David, led the people in rebuilding the temple. Now the work, uh, as later on with the the rebuilding of the, the wall, faced relentless opposition. And for 16 years, the work rebuilding the temple ceased. And God sent prophets, sent Zechariah, from whom we've been reading, and Haggai, to encourage Zerubbabel and his colleagues to restart the building work. And Zechariah 4 is a vision given to Zechariah, uh, but specifically for him to pass it on to Zerubbabel. Verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, as Cameron alluded, the, the chapter is difficult for us to understand, and it's perhaps heartening that Zechariah also found it hard to get the vision. Uh, he's a little bit dozy at the beginning. He has to be wakened up, and he doesn't totally comprehend what's going on. He sees a solid gold lampstand, which has seven lights and seven channels to each light. Uh, now, the, the maths of how many lamps there are is... Uh, Contentious. Some say that there's seven. Uh, the majority is for a figure of 49, so a kind of a menorah with seven uh, lights, but with each in each uh, cup an additional seven. So seven times seven, 49 lights, is the, the majority position. Two olive trees on either side are supplying golden oil through two branches to the lamp to the bowl of the lamp. So there's a continual source of fuel. Let me just race ahead at this point and say that the lamp represents the people of God. The two olive trees represent the anointed offices of king and priest that are seen in uh, Zerubbabel, the kingly line, and Joshua, the priest. People who are currently leading the temple rebuilding project And it therefore makes sense for this to be a word of encouragement to these two men. They are the anointed ones. They are to learn that the work is not their work alone, and that it will not triumph by human might, but by the Spirit of God. And in that way, the vision is an exhortation to Zerubbabel to continue through the opposition. Now, there is clearly then a, a relevance to the situation in 510 BC, the point at which the the building works were to start again. But Zerubbabel uh, is significant beyond the temple rebuilding project in the 6th century BC. He is, in many ways, a figure that points us to Jesus. That's why we have him selected in the genealogy. He is a Uh, In many ways, he's a a, a type of Christ. He's an anointed one, pointing us forward to the work of uh, the one uh, 
who in his humanity will descend from him. And we're going to look at four aspects of the connections between Zerubbabel and the Lord Jesus this morning. Uh, First of all, in Zerubbabel we see the leader of a remnant, the leader of uh, a small uh, remaining part of a larger people group. We see in Zerubbabel the conqueror of of opposition. Thirdly, we see in Zerubbabel uh, the, the one anointed by the Spirit. And fourthly, we see in Zerubbabel a great temple builder. These four things we're going to look at together. First of all, Zerubbabel is the leader of the remnant of God. Zechariah is asked what he sees in the vision, and he sees uh, a remarkable candelabra. It's like a menorah, uh, but it's different. It's like that menorah which burned uh, in the tabernacle, and two of which were in Solomon's temple. The lights, whether they're seven or, as most folk think, 49, are shining brightly. And they are fueled by a stream of golden oil from two olive trees. Now, in the Bible, a lampstand is often used figuratively of the covenant people of God. Isaiah 42 verse 6 tells us that Israel was to be a light to the nations. Jesus takes up the the figure in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.14 and tells his people, you are the light of the world. Um, We're told in John's revelation that the Lord is walking amongst the candlesticks uh, and the the, the candlesticks are are significant for the, the, uh, the churches to whom revelation is addressed. The lampstand then is a symbol of the covenant people of God, the remnant of Israel, the people of God. And in Zerubbabel's day, uh, the people of God had been preserved, and preserved as a pretty small remnant. But God had purposes for his people. They had failed uh, to be an attractive light to the surrounding nations when they had been living in Israel. And God had to use the the nations to judge his people. Uh, They had been taken to Babylon, and they were under the rod of God. They were being chastised. Uh, in, in terms of the warnings in Revelation, God had removed the candlestick from Jerusalem. But God had not given up on his covenant people. They are precious in his sight. And one of the aspects of the, the vision is the, the beauty and brilliance of what represents the people of God. They're a bright and they're a shining light. And the numbering, Seven, or seven times seven, speaks of God's favor. Seven is a number of perfection in the Bible. Uh, God is looking favorably on his own people. They are still loved by him. He is still keeping covenant with them. And Zerubbabel has been the civil leader of this people. He is the one to whom they have looked up in their time of exile. And now that Cyrus is saying they can return to Israel, he is the one who is leading the remnant from their bondage into freedom. Who does that remind you of? Reminds you of Moses, doesn't it? Moses uh, was the great leader of the people of God, taking them from bondage into freedom. 
And there's another interesting parallel as well. When Moses led the people of Israel from Egypt, uh, we're told that God moved the hearts of the people of Egypt, the neighbors of Israel, to give gold and silver and items of clothing to the Jews as they left Egypt. And Exodus 12, 36 says, And so they plundered the Egyptians. They didn't leave with next to nothing. They left enriched. And it was the same when uh, Zerubbabel led the people from Babylon, uh, now part of the, the, the Persian Empire, into Jerusalem. Cyrus commanded that they be enriched. He gave them the gold and silver and bronze utensils that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple and said, you take this with you back. When you build the temple, you'll need these utensils for the work of sacrifice. And the people left enriched from slavery, going back to freedom, just as Moses had led the people so long ago. Zerubbabel points us forward to Jesus who is our great liberator, who is the leader of a great remnant, who takes us from bondage, the bondage of Satan, out into the glorious freedom of the children of God. He takes us and doesn't take us in a, in a poor, impoverished fashion. He furnishes us with the gift of the Holy Spirit. A people who are precious in his sight, a people that are to be a light to the world. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Zerubbabel is reminding us that Jesus will come with a mission to call a people to himself who will be precious to him and who will shine to the nations. Zerubbabel then was a leader of the remnant. Secondly, he was a conqueror of opposition. The angel continues to Zechariah saying, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but my by spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Or more literally, grace grace to it. When Zerubbabel and the people returned to Jerusalem, they felt they faced an unrelenting barrage of opposition. Uh, some of it was very subtle because Satan is an angel of light. Masquerades is an angel of light. And so there were a bunch of guys who came and said to Zerubbabel that they wanted to help. Let us help you. This is in Ezra 4. Let us help you because, like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. That a bit about being brought here is significant. Esarhaddon was one of the uh, Assyrians who, whose policy was to, uh, to subdue a people by mixing them up with other people groups. And so what happened in uh, the north of Israel was that there were so many different uh, people groups with different religious backgrounds that you had a new uh, kind of hybridized uh, people whose religion was also hybridized and they became known as the Samaritans. Samaritans were orthodox in some respects but not in others and these people were certainly worshippers of many gods and as we read on in Ezra 4, it's quite clear that they, they didn't want to come and offer their help because they were convinced 
believers in Yahweh. They wanted to undermine the, the, the temple building project. They had designs to derail what God was doing. And Zerubbabel uh, sees through them and says, thanks, but no thanks. He refuses their offer of help. Now, what they were coming with was basically the, the 6th century BC version of multi-faith worship. We worship the same God. We have mention of Jesus in our scriptures, uh, Abraham and so on. That's often what's said of uh, Islam, isn't it? And therefore, we're essentially addressing the same God in prayer, except we're not. It's quite a different religion because the God that we worship as Christians is the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And any other God uh, is, is a false God. And a call to that kind of, of merged worship is a form of idolatry. Idolatry of the mind. You have no part with us in building a temple to the Lord, says Zerubbabel. Ezra 4 verse 3. And yet, the opposition went on. And Cyrus was far away. And eventually, the kind of underlords and the, the, the petty governors in, in Judah managed to shut down the work of temple building so it would stop for 15 years until in the time of Zechariah and Haggai it restarted. Here we're at that point where the temple building is about to restart and Zechariah comes with a word of the Lord to Zerubbabel after those 15 long years of discouragement and God promises that his plans will be fulfilled not by human strength not by human might but by his spirit and an overflowing superabundant never ending supply of the spirit of God will be the way that his work is completed Zerubbabel had laid the foundation stone. Zerubbabel will complete the task. He will lay the capstone. I think the capstone is you know, that uh, key-shaped stone on the archway. It's the last one to be, to be put in place. Cornerstone will be laid at the beginning and the capstone will be laid finally. And Zerubbabel will have his hand as, a, as the project comes to completion. And the people will cry, grace, grace, because it will have been a work of grace, a work of God's grace, when that temple is finished. The conqueror of opposition and a mighty mountain mover. There was a mountain of opposition to Zerubbabel. And when the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, came to earth, there was a mountain of opposition towards him. Some of it came in subtly. We see the, the subtlety of Satan in the, the wilderness temptations. Uh, Jesus being encouraged to seek a kingdom without uh, the, the path of sacrifice, suffering servanthood. Even the disciples continually trying to, to lure Jesus away to a more triumphalist messiahship. No, uh, surely not. It shall never be, says Peter. 
when Jesus speaks about his impending death. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You have not in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Satan's opposition. Opposed by the mountain of the religious establishment. And eventually nailed to a cross in shame. But a mountain of opposition can't thwart God's purposes. And on the cross of Calvary and in the resurrection, what is Jesus doing? He is bearing and moving a mountain of sin. The enormity of the sin, of my sin and and your sin, and the sin of all his people down the ages, moved away. The mountain that's cast into the depths of the sea. Jesus is the mountain mover. Thirdly, he's the spirit bringer. For a man like Zerubbabel, uh, the sight of of this menorah would have also reminded him of the the never-ending task that the priests had in the tabernacle and then Solomon's temple to tend the lamps. The lamps were never to go out. And therefore they had to be continually replenished with oil. But here was, here was a lamp that never went out because it was continually furnished by oil. It's a renewable energy engineer's uh, dream come true. <laughs> a light that never goes out because the, the energy never fails. It's coming all the time, supplied <laughs> by these branches from these amazing olive trees on either side. And oil, of course, is is a sign of the Spirit. This is one of the more obvious parts of the, the vision. God is supplying His Spirit endlessly. Anointing with oil on the prophet, priest, and king indicated their dependence on the Spirit of God. And Zerubbabel is to take courage from the inexhaustible power that the Holy Spirit uh, confers on his servants to equip them for serving God's people. And the covenant community, <coughs> depending on the power of the Holy Spirit, will shine bright in a dark world. Jesus, in his humanity, depended throughout his earthly ministry on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He was filled without measure by the Spirit. He's the fulfiller of Isaiah 62.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He's the anointed one, you see, anointed by the Spirit to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me uh, to bear up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus is the one who is filled without measure by the Spirit. Jesus is the one who brings the Holy Spirit. Remember that mysterious verse in John? The Spirit had not yet come because Jesus had not yet ascended. The Spirit coming on God's people depended upon the final stage of his triumph. After his cross and resurrection and his return to the Father, Jesus receives as a, as a gift, a, a crowning gift, the Holy Spirit for the church. And the Spirit is poured out 
at Pentecost on all believers without difference. And without the Holy Spirit, you cannot be a Christian. So many people get drawn to Jesus and it's wonderful to read the Bible and to think, what a wonderful person. And to read the Sermon on the Mount and think, what a wonderful life. I want to live my life by the Sermon on the Mount. And unless you're born again of the Spirit of God, unless you've been made new by the the Spirit of God, then all of that will become simply unattractive legalism. And you wear yourself out, seeking to do what you cannot do in your own strength. But when we trust in Jesus, when we we come and we, we receive his forgiveness, he gives us his Spirit and creates within our hearts a desire and an ability to please him. And nothing is impossible. Uh, Jesus may well have had this passage in mind when he said to his disciples that uh, their prayers could move all opposition. He said, truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is a great mountain mover. Fourthly and finally, Jesus is the temple builder. Zerubbabel is the temple builder. Jesus is the temple builder. Zerubbabel's days are spent not on a throne, as he might have expected to have spent his days had the exile not taken place. But instead of being attended by servants, he spends his days busy overseeing the practical work of of laying a foundation getting the levels right, getting uh, things plumb and square, overseeing the distribution of materials, making sure things arrive on time and in the right place, scrutinizing plans, making provision uh, for the workers. Here is a work that's full of significance and Zerubbabel's days are fully occupied in this great building project. Very different from the life of a king. And our King Jesus left the glory of heaven and the worship of angels and came down to a carpenter's bench in Nazareth. And there he labored. And nobody paid any attention to him in all these uh, quiet years of sinless, faithful service. And when he embarked on his earthly ministry, it was to serve and not to be served. And he came to fulfill all that the temples of old had represented. What's the significance of a temple, folks? What's it all about? A temple is a meeting place between God and man. A temple is a a physical sign that we can relate to God on the basis of sacrifice. God is in the business of building temples. God who designs to be in relationship with us, who wants us to be restored to friendship with him, 
is continually building temples through his spirit and his kings. In Eden, Adam communes with God in a spirit-built temple, the garden. At the time of the Exodus, God fills uh, Bezalel with the Holy Spirit for the work of, of constructing the temple according to the design he will give. And there in the tabernacle, God will meet with his people. The people settle in the land. David has his heart set on building a temple. But God said, no, it won't be you. It will be your son. And Solomon builds a temple. Again, by a pattern established uh, by God. And the power of the Spirit as God's king. And as he does so, Zerubbabel, like Adam and Bezalel and David and Solomon before him, is a type a foreshadowing of the final great king who's empowered by the Spirit without measure, who will build for himself the true temple, the final temple. Jesus is God's final temple. Jesus is the place where we meet with God. Jesus uh, says to the, uh, the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. John comments he was speaking of his body. Jesus is the sacrifice that makes us right with God. Faith in Jesus means that we may meet with God, no longer condemned, but accepted as God's friend. Jesus is building a house, far more glorious than any earthly temple. Uh, and he's taking people like you and me who are so chipped and so out of line and problematic. And he's renewing us and slotting us into that temple. The church of Christ is the temple of God may not look much we may be tempted to weep over her at times but you know it's the only institution in the world that has an eternal future everything else is going to fade away but the people of God will endure eternally in the presence of the living God and so as we think about Zerubbabel the temple builder the question the practical question that we face is are you built into that temple? Are you built in Jesus, the solid rock? Have you believed into Jesus so that you are united to him by faith? Because only the people who are joined to Jesus are built up into this house of faith are the people who have a future. All else is wishful thinking, whistling in the dark. But for those who are in Christ, we have a solid rock on which we are built. We have a solid hope for an everlasting future. And may God therefore bless his word of hope, his eternal gospel to us, and grant to us a glad and a willing response of faith. Amen.